Let's thank the Lord. Dear Lord God, we're grateful for all the good that you have done for us. We'd ask that we would respond as we ought. In your son's name, amen. Um, I've been on kind of a jag recently uh, talking to various people about faith and and which is a normal subject for Christians to be talking about but um, it always surprises me how much work you have to do to inspire somebody to live as God desires them to live whether they're a non-Christian under the gospel or a Christian under pleasing God and, and as, a, as a church, you know, we're not a, we're not a happening thing, but we're about trying to understand our lives better before him. Um, and so we stay off of, you, you have probably heard on the streets that your pastor holds some dark and disturbing ideas. And I, I don't talk about them here because they're dark and disturbing. Um, and we're about the Christian life. We, we, you know, we'd like to see believers from every background. We'd like to see believers from all sorts of theological persuasions gathered together because Jesus Christ is their, is their Savior. And we have that unity because he's our Savior. And so we ought to be able to talk about things together that are beneficial. And so maybe we take a little pride in not being a smarty-pants church going after the basics. I was talking to Nick last night about pastors teaching about the fruit of the Spirit. What a great thing, you know, love and joy and peace and patience kind of. And it seems that when you stop and, and so I'm going to do a sermon about love, or I'm going to do a sermon about faith, or I'm going to do a sermon about peace. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, you can, you can flip the Bible open almost to any page and you'll you'll stumble across some aspect of the scripture's definition of those things, you know. Well, you know love is good, right? You can even buy a metal sign with it on there at Bed Bath & Beyond. You can, you can hang something on your wall that says, faith, hope, love. I have that verse here. First thing on the left-hand side, Corinthians 13, 13. So faith, hope, love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. It just chokes you up, right? Love. And there's usually a, a kitten in the picture. And so serious Christians who are serious about their walk with the Lord, they said, no, no, we need to define these biblically. I have it right here in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You know that verse because somewhere in some discussion where faith was brought up, someone said, well, how do you define faith? He said, excuse me, I have a verse. Faith is this. And perhaps you've got verses, well that one I swiped from Corinthians 13. There was a definition of love just a little bit earlier. Love is patient and kind. You probably, in short order with your concordance or your, your non-Bible you have on your tablet, you know, the Bible without the inspiration, 
you can get the same words, but none of the inspiration on a tablet. Um, would tell you where to find definitional passages about hope. And Romans 8, you know, hope that is seen is not hope. Like I said, this is easy. Christianity is easy. We got the things we're supposed to be doing. Being loving, joyful, peaceful, etc., etc., etc. Easy to find the definitions for those things. You can even play songs about those things in such a way, in such a tempo, with a big enough bass line that everybody would feel excited about faith, hope, and love, and all these things. Why do I still have to do counseling? We know what we're supposed to do. We have the definitions for what those things are. Maybe even very sophisticated definitions. We're excited about those definitions. We sing songs. Raise our hands. Why the train wrecks? Why the messed up lives? Why the chaos? Why the frustration? Why the sin? Say, well, this is a long way around to Psalm 73. You haven't even gotten to verse 1 yet, Evan. Remember, second law, Medes and the Persians. We're sorry for singing those extra hymns. Sorry, it's not going to cover it. But I wanted to, this is something I've been thinking about. Again, I've been chatting with my friends about it. I think we even talked about it in drones a little bit, quite a bit yesterday. I was thinking of the sower here on the right-hand side, Matthew 13. This is jumping right in the middle of the parable. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation... Or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is he who hears the word. But the cares of this world and the delight in riches choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. You have negative cares, they're going to persecute me. You have positive cares, i got to get rich. I gotta enjoy being rich. Keeps these two qualities of dirt from producing any fruit for God. So now let's look at Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to the upright, to those who are pure in heart. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had well nigh slipped. There's something that Asaph, this is a psalm of Asaph, that Asaph is talking about here, that he's going, you know, I know, I know what the drill is, I know what the theology is, I know what I'm supposed to think about God, I want to let you know, I know he took a tumble on this issue. The reason Christian ministers, the ones who are faithful, are still having to do work with people, the reason you, when talking to your friends, are still trying to figure out a way, once you've described love to them or described peace to them, and you go, you, what? You don't want it? The reason this is this case is what this psalm 
seems to deal with. He says, I, I nearly slipped on this situation. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs. Their bodies are sound and sleek. They are not in trouble as other men are. They are not stricken like other men. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out with fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their, tongue, their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. You have met this person. You know him on campus, you know him in business. They have it all worked out. <clears throat> have you ever noticed that beautiful people, I'm not fishing for a compliment, beautiful people, you know, someone who could just take their shirt off on camera, and you're looking at it and say, well, everything's in its place and there are no moles and there's no bumpy parts and no rash. I live with just, I, I'd probably look like a leper if I took my shirt. It would, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I want to hear that good. But the, the beautiful people, their cars always run well. Always nice vehicles, always, and they walk like they're leopards. They go, and they, or they, I love this word, they strut through the earth. Therefore, the people turn and praise them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. In all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. And for all the day long I have been stricken and chastened every morning. You get up in the morning, you've got a rash. Get up in your morning and your hair is north by northwest, you can't do anything about it. And if you're Ryan Reynolds, it just falls into place. Just lovely people, sinful people, Wealthy, sinful people. And time and life goes on, and then 30 years later, you're still seeing their face on the front of Weekly World News, National Enquirer, and they're still beautiful. And your Aunt Betty has cancer. And life's not going well, and your investments didn't turn out, and someone stole your stuff. We nigh slip on regard, in regard to this. We, we uh, almost stumble. Maybe you did stumble. You start to measure as the world pr produces a very nicely choreographed PR video of life. This is how life, all you have to be is wealthy and beautiful. All you have to be is wealthy and beautiful. You know that you don't even have to be smart. Kids, don't worry about your education. You don't have to be smart. As long as you're beautiful, as long as you, your parents leave you a lot of money, 
or you make a lot of money. That's all it takes. Now, why does that start to appeal to us? What? Well, in some ways, because we're Christians that haven't maybe yet realized that in the parable of the sower, where the people who receive the word, and we haven't been persecuted yet, or it really hasn't come down to this almost stumbling moment about wealth, the delight in riches, the fear of loss on persecution part, the delight in gain on the opposite. We don't realize one of the things I've got, I, I know what love is, I know what joy is, I know what peace is, I know what patience is. I could write a paper for my theology teacher at Logos about those things. I could have footnotes to Bible verses. I could sing songs about those things. But you know what it comes down to, tragically? In counseling or in need, in any situation where you're not reaching what you know you ought to be reaching, you're not loving like you should be loving, is you don't want to. Simple. <laughs> like, I, like I rocket science up here, you know, I've got a printout, sermon notes. Oh, this is going to be interesting. He just said we don't want to. That's all it was. We don't want to. I've talked to people who actually argue, Christians who argue with me, argue with me about joy. No, I don't have to be. Do I really have to be loving all the time? Yeah. Well, yeah. What's wrong with you? You don't want to be loving all the time? No, I don't want to. Because there are moments, there are moments when non-believers or your spouse does something and you want to feature life in terms of human desire. You want to arrange it the way you want it to be. We maybe include Jesus in the matter because an awful lot of theologies do. We, we see Christ as a path to the success of my other desires. What does it say in James about wars and fightings among you? It's not your passions that wage war in your members. You desire and do not have, so you kill. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. We treat the faith that way in many, many churches. I don't think it's necessarily the case here. I have hopes for your souls. But a lot of people, when you talk about prayer, you ever talked about prayer with some friends? Everybody's looking, well, how do you make prayer work? Well, it always works. I mean, you prayed. He said, no. Oh, no, no, you don't seem to understand, Evan. Prayer working is me getting a yes. How much faith do I have to have to make God pay out? That's, the prayer worked. You were told no. Jesus Christ in the garden, the most righteous man who ever lived, doing the, hadn't done anything wrong, praying a prayer of really heartfelt hurt, saying, Lord, if there's any way this can pass from me, but not my will but thine be done. God said, no. 
St. Paul prayed for an affliction in the flesh three times. No. My grace is sufficient for you. We expect prayer to be, well, it's supposed to be an avenue to my desires. Stop and think, sometimes we dress up our earthly desires for success or whatever else in Christian terms so we can pray for them to be filled in with a certain yes. So we'll never notice that we're really the kind of person who is about earthly desire all the time. And then when it doesn't happen, we're tempted to think, well, how come the wicked are getting this? How come the wicked have flawless skin? Besides Photoshop. Now, first we're saying we're going to treat God like he's the vending machine. The world looks like it's handing out the vending stuff then we're not in the situation because we're here we are north idaho middle class i'm just gonna i'm just gonna presume that you don't have flawless skin okay i'm gonna presume that you don't have all the money in the world and it didn't happen for us we're very conscious of not having the kinds of people in the world there are the wicked who are very conscious of having don't need god we who don't have, can be very conscious of not having, and we don't think of God. And you have to ask, once it's, when it's love and joy and, and, and peace and hope, and you heard Bible words, and you, your definition is, is, and you've been working on one, one of these things, and how much of it is of the grace of God giving me this stuff? You know, force it off on God. This whole desire thing, you came up with your desires. You decided which were going to be important to you. From the time you were a little tight, deciding what you were going to get. So yes, since you decide your desires, it makes you a bad person. You can't push this off on the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Your desire to be holy is yours. Own it. What do you desire? What do you want? When I thought, oh, verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have been untrue to the generation of thy children. Asaph realizes, if I leave this this way, the wicked are sleek and puffy See, it used to be very, very fashionable to be puffy. Just saying. It's just a fashion thing, you skinny people. Fat behind the eyes. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have been untrue to the generation of thy children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed like a wearisome task. Why is there this presence of reward of the of the things of this world money looks smarts sleekness and it enters their step you've seen people that are confident in their walk
It's a tough question. How do I understand this? I know I can't go this way. We, we know we're, we're on board with this all the way through the sermon, right? This is not what I should be thinking like, nor should I support this. And yet, understanding it, how do I get to the bottom of desire? How do I not just admit that my desires are where I stumble, not in my knowledge of definitions, not the hymns I sing, not the word list that I have chosen to define Christianity by, it's whether or not I want what God wants. Do I want it? Do I want it more than other things? I wanted to know how to understand this. It was a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. You want to know what's going on here? Um, we're, we're, we're not really uh, grown up about this. We haven't stopped to consider in the presence of God the measure of his universe. In the presence of God, in the sanctuary of God, where what God says starts to define the world that he made. Because we, oh, we're over here trying to pick up clues about the world he made as a two-year-old and then a three-year-old. Then we figure out the language. And then we run around and then girls become important and it goes to Hades in a handbasket. And it, it, we're trying to figure things out. And over here in Christ, in God, in his sanctuary, in his presence, he will tell you what his world is like. Did I even think of asking, going, believing? Because I believed something. Your design of your desires, your deciding that, well, no, money is going to be the most important thing to me. Some people have made that decision. Or some say power is the most important thing to me. They made that decision. We know we got verses thrust at us that deny us those things, and yet in the background, we're having this conflict because we still have a desire for the worldly reward. The puffy eyes. The strut. When you see from the sanctuary of God, then you said, then I perceive their end. Truly thou dost set them in slippery places. Thou dost make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. On awaking, you despise their phantoms. When you stand in the presence of God, all of that illusion of they always look good for the next 30 years on the cover of National Enquirer. They always look good. They always look successful. They always, you know, 15th husband. They're always happy. Nothing ruins them. And when something ruins them, they can turn that into a money-making prospect, right? Because if, you, if you're really famous, <clears throat> let me think, if I were one of the world's greatest athletes, married a woman with daughters from hell, and they started acting like they were from hell, and then I thought I was a woman, I got fixed. I know, I'll make a TV show out of it. And I'll make gazillions of dollars. They invest their sin. 
And you're standing in the sanctuary of God, you begin to realize not just that God will judge, but the whole system is rigged against them. The poor saps. When you know, when you know who God is and what God has said, and you have started to desire what he wants of his universe, you begin to see the end that they, you're not just saying, well, I know they'll get theirs in the end. I still want what they have, but I, since I can't have it, I'd rather have God take it away from them. I'd rather have them destroyed. No, it's not about having fat eyeballs and, and a confident walk. It's about whether or not they have served themselves and been incorrect incorrect in that desire. When my soul was embittered, and I made that point in that verse 20, that bold section on the end of it. When you stand with God, you see the world system as a dream-like, and what is like a dream? I mean, how do you know something's a dream? How is this not a dream right now? You're, you've seen Inception, right? You know, you know, it's kind of hard to tell. It's not hard to tell. It's easy to tell a dream. Why? Because nothing is constant, nothing but keeps the rules. Uh, things aren't logical anymore. And that's what the life of earthly desire claims, claims to be a reality and really it's not rooted in any, any, any standard that God put into the universe. And you end up going, oh man, I, I pity the fools. I pity these guys who run their lives as if the pursuit of these things was the thing to desire. When my soul was embittered, I was pricked in heart. And I like this list. I was stupid and ignorant. I was like a beast toward thee. That's got three things. So if you're the kind of person who says, all sermons must have a three-part. Well, this is it. Stupid, ignorant, and bestial. Okay? Now, I want, another thing I noticed about stupid, I always like it when the Bible says the word stupid. Just a thing with me. Uh, ignorant, bestial, like a beast. I want you to make sure you notice these two things. Uh, I was stupid, and I was arrogant, ignorant, and I was like a beast. You didn't become a beast. You're not a beast. You just behaved like a beast. But you were stupid. I mean, you embraced stupid. It became part of you, part of the system that you lived by. When I did not see, when I did not explain, when I did not stand in the presence of God, if I don't realize that in order to redo my desires, because that's what we're dealing with, here, we know what love is, we know what hope is, we know what joy is, we need to come home and say, okay, it's like I don't want it as much as I, oh no, I ought to want it. How do I re retool my wants to not value what the world wants? I have to cure the stupid and the ignorant and the bestial things in me. I have to admit, there's this passage out of Jeremiah I wanted to put in here. I know, O oh Lord, that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his steps. You know that passage in Proverbs 16? The man plans his way, but the Lord his steps. 
You know, because unless you're standing with the Lord, and without the Lord standing for you, walking for you through circumstances, you don't have the craft to do this well. You will only ruin it. Somebody was making the illustration the other night about was it somebody about the monkeys and the coconuts, but they won't let go of the nuts inside the coconut and they can't get their hand out. We're like that. We're like that. We can't let go of the things we desire, even though it's destroying us. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou dost hold my right hand. Thou dost guide me with thy counsel. And afterward, thou wilt receive me to glory. You have to, since desire is of your making, you have got to do something to remake your desire. You have to go to the sanctuary. You have to ask. You have to stand there with him. You have to admit. Confess that you're stupid. Confess that you're ignorant. Confess that you're bestial. And say, I'm sorry. Hold my hand. Guide me with thy counsel. People who just say, you know, I'm probably wrong. This is what I think, but I'm probably wrong. I think I'm going to go with God's view on the matter. It's amazing to see that in people. And afterward, thou received me to glory. And this is the verse, verse 25 is the one that I, that drew me to Psalm 73 uh, this morning. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides thee. Asaph just goes, you know, that's the, that's the target. That's what I'm supposed to be thinking. That's what I'm supposed to be wanting, both in heaven and on earth. My desires are fixed in God. Now, I wanted to read to you. I think, I think everybody would go naturally, amen. Okay? They would say, okay, yeah, I see that. Here's the list of things we have to find. We're supposed to get those done. If we desired to get them done, the Lord's power and grace would be there for us to get them done. So really, yes, we've got to watch our desires. I mean, how can you say at church to the pastor on his birthday that that was a sucky sermon? So yeah, we're all for that, desiring God. I mean, Piper, doesn't he have a book with that title? Doesn't that make it holy? Desiring God. I was thinking about the James passage, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. We can work it backwards. When we're struggling, when we can't get the, get the handle on something, it's not merely that, oh, the temptation to be a sinner is too much. What desires? It's not my temptation to drink too much of vodka. It's not my temptation to be run around with women who'd make me write bad checks. Whatever the sinfulness that is, you know, very vivid to Christians today. I'm not tempted to be an abortionist. Okay. All right. What happens when your desire 
is not to seek God, but to seek all the things in this world, to delight in these things, not be disturbed in your life. That's your desire. And it doesn't really stand out because it wasn't a desire for overt sin, right? It wasn't, Lord, you know, this is what I desire is to be angry all the time in a murderous rage, sleeping with as many people as I possibly can in a drug-induced haze. Okay, that's, okay, that person's wicked, right? But you have desires that are nicely, comfortably worldly. You are tempted when you're lured and enticed by your own desire. If the desire is just this simple, worldly, added up number of dollars in the bank balance, amount of fame that you have accrued, we're tempted when we're lured and enticed by our own desire. It matters. We, we had have the temptation to destroy our own lives. We then decide what we're going to follow. Because if I have desire and temptation holds out this little, you know, catnip to the desire, what am I going to do? What's the, what's the, um, 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 what do I have to undo? What I have to undo is the desire. I have to, I have to challenge the thing that un, was undercutting me. I was thinking I was completely normal. When in, when in reality, I was not desiring to most of all please God. When, those of you who have been to our marriage seminar or, or um, other situations where I've said this, there are three things that you need to believe, need to have worked out for anything to work in your life. You have to believe the gospel. In other words, you had to have come to Jesus Christ in faith by the work of his son, death, burial, and resurrection. Two, you have to desire to please God. And we've all got the desire to please ourselves worked out. That's what's challenging it. Have you worked out the desire to please God? That the way he wants it, you want it more than the way you want it. Not my will, but thine be done. I don't care how noble your earthly desires are, but I wanted to save my family, so I denied Jesus Christ under torture. Uh, oops. Your family, your desire for your children to not die, is not more important than Jesus Christ. Your love of your life, your spouse, whom you got down on one knee and pledged your troth, Swore before witnesses, a physical license at the county courthouse. Jesus Christ is more important than she is. Sorry. <laughs> you will obey him before you obey her. Some women don't like that. Some men don't like that when their wife says, I serve Jesus Christ. And whatever is left be happy to make you a sandwich. But, if you tell me to do anything against my Lord, I'm sorry. Do you have it worked out? Because if you don't, whatever desire you let rest is the desire by which you will be tempted and led astray. Bob. There's nothing upon earth that I desire besides thee. 
It says in Philippians 3, 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The last verses there of the psalm, My flesh and my heart may fail. It makes you think of the Charles Wesley, Though my flesh and heart shall fail, and mortal life shall cease. I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, those who are far from thee shall perish. Thou dost put an end to those who are false to thee. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all thy works. When you refocus, when you say, I made this cobbled together desire life that I walk around with. I know I have a weakness for the arts, or I have a weakness for the, for the sciences, or a weakness for the ladies, or a weakness for the model, or whatever it is you have a weakness for, you have a desire for. I made that. I designed that. Those things, those people, those false desires, or those desires that are the wrong arrangement for man, it's going to lead to me perishing. But all in all, it is a better desire to be near God. It is a better desire to speak of Him. As you're going through your own life, measure your own uh, speech. Not yet do I cuss. Do I speak of my Lord? Not just when I am witnessing to an unbeliever, but do I speak of my Lord because my Lord is who I stand close to. My Lord is who I desire. And when I have desired him, I will speak of him. I will tell of his works. Because I'll find out about them in the scriptures. I'll, I'll experience them in my own life. When we find ourselves envying the world, it's like the memorable verse here. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We envy when we, uh, we are measuring our own lives by the things that that other person was rewarded in. Those are the areas you'll be tempted. Those will be the areas you fall. Check your desire. Don't just check whether or not you believe that love is X. Your hope is why is your desire to be love and hope. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. You are good to us, more good than we deserve. But Lord, we wish to desire you and stand in your presence. In your son's name we pray. Amen.